looking nice and svelte, isn't he? Actually, business is down. He can't afford enough to eat. That's what's happening to him. He's just wasting away, that poor boy. Harry Falk, it's good to see you this morning. You feeling all right? All right, good. Harry, uh, Harry changed his medications on Sunday morning and had a little episode in church. Moral of that story, don't change your medications on a Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> Harry, we're just glad to see you here. <laughs> you got somebody sitting on the right and the left there? All right. <laughs> Actually, I think I, I was thinking. You know, some people some people do anything to cut a sermon short. You know, <laughs> Harry's a glutton for punishment. Back this morning, look at him sitting there. He's saying, "Dare me?" You know, I dare you. All right, let's look at Ecclesiastes and what we've been noticing. I think underneath this this unbelievable book. I mean, you know, Job. Let all of us who are suffering know that life is miserable. Now, this book lets us know that even when life is good, life is miserable. And underneath it all is this idea that, you know, you got to face death. <laughs> like we saw on the YouTube thing last week, you're going to die. You know, you're not getting around this. And uh, some people try to suppress that reality. And that was the reason for our little YouTube experience last week is just, you know, stop suppressing it. Bring it up to the front and take a look at it. And it'll either kill you or it'll lead you to Jesus, you know, one or the other. And it does kill some people. They just get so depressed over it. They can't, they just can't deal with the reality that I'm, you know, this whole thing's going to end up with me, you know, with my hands crossed my chest, my eyelids closed and going down six feet under. I just can't deal with it. And Ecclesiastes is helping you face the fact you can't really deal with it. All of life is just totally meaningless if that's the way it all ends up. Any philosopher, any thinking person will conclude that. But we've seen, we saw last week that that's exactly what the resurrection does. It cuts through all this stuff. It's the only thing that will. It's the only knife that's going to cut this one uh, to deal with death. It's the only thing that can defeat death, death and then therefore bring meaning into life. So we want to keep looking at the implications of the resurrection. That's really what we're looking at in Ecclesiastes. What are the implications of the resurrection? It triumphs over this stuff. Uh, which is looking at life without the resurrection and without eternal life. So let's, let's look at this in portions. Uh, let's read the first three verses of chapter 4 to begin with. And we're going to see some, some more things that, well, you're going to see I dressed up my language a little bit. You know, uh, you need to use variety in your vocabulary, so I'll do that today. But let's look at uh, verses 1 through 3. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, or who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. All right, let's stop here. Number one, suffering stinks. Don't you like my new word? <laughs> suffering stinks. It just does. It's no fun. And why? Well, often, number A, when you look around at the oppressed, they have no comforter. You look, you look around the world. Look, look at Somalia. 
a nation that's in total chaos. Who's going to comfort those people? If there ever is a reasonable person in that nation, how is that person going to survive? There's total chaos around him. And the oppressed have no comforter. And you can look in the history of, of the world at those that are oppressed in various nationalities and different periods of history. Where does their comforter come from? If you look at the, the, the annihilation of the Armenians by the Turks, you know, hundreds of thousands of Christians just put to death. And you say, where's their comforter? There was none. You look, you look throughout our own history, our oppression in our country, uh, in, in 19th century slavery. Where was the comforter? There was none. And you look at the oppression in this world and you say, what is the meaning of all of this? There is no comforter for those who are being oppressed. Um, and then secondly, you'll notice in verse 1 that the reason is that the power belongs to the oppressors. It seems that the power ought to belong to those who are on the underside, but it doesn't. It's just not fair. Life stinks. Suffering stinks. Oppression stinks. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And that's what this teacher, this Koheleth, is saying. Looks around the world, that's what he sees universally. And things haven't changed, have they? So you draw the conclusion, see, the dead are happier than the living. Just put me six feet under. Get it over with. That's what he's saying. To be or not to be, that is the question. And not to be looks better. And then he goes on, presses his case, number three, I suppose if that's true, it'd be better not to be born at all. The unborn are happier than everybody. It's just better not to be even brought into this life. Well, this does drive us, doesn't it? To ask the Lord, what is the meaning of life? What does cut through all this? And we've seen the resurrection does it. Uh, my, my friend, uh, Dr. Philip Riken, who's the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, is coming out with a commentary on Ecclesiastes. He sent me a transcript uh, a few months ago, asked me to endorse his book, which I told him I'd be glad to do. And in this section, I, I was reading his manuscript, and he tells the story of a woman named Lena, uh, who is uh, Egyptian. She grew up in a, a Muslim background, a Muslim family, and she believed that Christ was a prophet, you know, as the Quran says, but certainly not the Son of God. And then she heard on on radio the message of the gospel, and it quickened her spirit and she began to look into these things and came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And of course, uh, her family was very upset and they actually uh, took her and beat her. And uh, then after she wouldn't repent, they not only beat her, they just totally cast her out of the family. And she wrote in her testimony, she said about her life, I'm in real danger but I trust God because He's alive. My comfort is that it is only a short time I'm spending here on earth, but there will be a long time that I'll spend with Him. We know there will come a time when there will be no more sorrow or suffering. This is our hope in the Lord Jesus. Isn't it amazing how in times of oppression and difficulty and suffering in your own life, the clearest expression of your faith in Jesus Christ comes forth. Our faith is never clearer than when the chips are down. And if the chips are down in your life right now, 
you've got a wonderful opportunity to show forth Christ. If your business is lousy, you lost your job, here's your opportunity. If you're having troubles in your family, one of your children is in great trouble, uh, you have all kinds of reasons to be down in the mouth and to give up on life, here's your opportunity. And that's really what Lena was doing uh, in, in her struggle, is simply showing forth the power of the resurrection to lead us through these difficult times. So, suffering stinks, yeah. But the glory of the resurrection is greater than the stink of the suffering in this life because we have hope. Now, secondly, let's look at, look at verses 4 through 12, and we'll see not only suffering stinks, but achievement stinks. Thanks to Ecclesiastes, we're going to find that fun is not as much fun as we thought it was. Uh, let's look at verses 4 through 12. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Achievement stinks. All labor and all achievement, it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Why? Well, first of all, verses 4 through 6, you see clearly uh, achievement springs from envy. <laughs> the way things are in this life, uh, our desires to achieve things largely come from just comparing ourselves to our neighbor. I was talking to a friend of mine. This was years ago. He had been in a small group, accountability group, for about 15 years. And he was 50. And these guys had been meeting together every Monday morning for 15 years. And he told me that after they had been meeting together for 10 years, finally everybody admitted why they were successful. One was a bank president. One was a manufacturing vice president. One at that time was another president of his company. Another one was a physician, another lawyer. These five guys admitted why they were successful. He said, we all admitted they were scared to death. <laughs> that if you're not going up, you're going to go down. It was basically just their insecurities that were driving them. And it's all based on comparing yourself to somebody else. You're afraid you're going to get ahead. So most of what motivates the capitalistic system and the ethos of achievement uh, that's in the, in the uh, environment in which you're living and working is driven from a violation of the Tenth Commandment. <laughs> the, the Tenth Commandment says not to covet what your neighbor has. And most of what we do is because we want what our neighbor has, and so we want to get ahead. And those of you who are in ministry, it affects you too. You want to get ahead. You want to have a name. You want to, you want to be recognized. Uh, and, and we're notorious for that, aren't we? Those of us who are in public service or public ministry, notorious for wanting to be recognized and congratulated. Uh, and here, you know, the Koheleth nails you. He just says, look, I know what's underneath that skin of yours. I know what's motivating a lot of what you do. And what's interesting is 
as we've seen the economic standards rise in our country, the standards of satisfaction and contentment just keep going up. So we cannot be content as long as somebody else is doing better than we are. So when they start doing better than we are, then our level, our demanded level of subsistence or contentment keeps going up. And so our demands keep going up and up and up. And this has been shown in a number of studies, as you know, from the 19th century. So it just, it's this envy and greed and uh, competition that is driving so much of what we do. And it just ends up being meaningless. That's what he's saying. It all stinks because our hard work is just coming because we're envious. Ellen Goodman, as you probably recognize, is a syndicated columnist. Uh, some years ago, she wrote about a guy who died at 51 years of age, coronary thrombosis. He had worked six days a week till 8 or 9 o'clock uh, every night. And when he died, the day of his funeral, the boss went into his workspace and said, okay, we need to replace old Joe. Who around here works the hardest? And you know, just miserable. It's like a you know, slave camp. But the most telling comment was at the uh, funeral when someone said to his wife, oh, I bet you're really going to miss him. And she says, oh, I already have for years. You know, what a, what a life. And Ellen Goodman's point was, what a life. You know, you can, you can be very successful and end up being a slave and just throwing your life away. And the point that's being made here, if you look at B, 7 through 12, this helps nobody. You can be in labor all your life, working hard, taking great pride in your work and helping nobody. Why? Number one, money is no substitute for people. His eyes were not content with his wealth. And what he didn't notice is that verse 8, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. And there was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with all of his wealth. And he asked the question, for whom am I toiling? Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? It's meaningless. Why don't you face the fact that when you are simply piling up assets without reference to other people, it is meaningless. So, you know, Christ is going to come back at the end. The world's going to burn. So you end up with a bigger ash heap than the guy next to you. I mean, what is the point? So often guys climb the ladder and they feel like they, they find out way late in the game the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. You know? But get your life trajectory headed in the right direction. Then your labor and your toil, as, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, is not in vain. It's very useful labor when it's connected with the Lord's purposes in your life, which are going to connect you with people around you. And you see what he says here, that you're better off, uh, verse uh, 6, with a handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil. So you're much better off having about half of what you've earned and have peace with your neighbor, love your wife, spend time with your children, engage the life of your church, serve our community, vote on Tuesday. I mean, get involved you know, with a larger life. You're much better off with half of what you were trying to earn than have all that you're planning to earn and sacrifice all your relationships. It's just a tragedy to see, see guys go through life and miss the, the whole point of it all. 
Um, so money is no substitute for people. So number two, get some friends. Make sure you're connecting with people because we need companionship. We need accountability. We need prayer support. And let me just ask you, are you in a small group? We offer small groups for discussion here. I know uh, some of you may come and go in those groups pretty quickly, but at least making some attempt to connect reasonably in a reasonably open way with other guys who can get to know your life. Do you have somebody that's a close enough friend so that if you were in moral trouble, you know that he would stay right with you all the way to the end? Do you have a friend that's loyal enough that he would guard your back through prayer support if you were in a tough situation? Do you have anybody that you are willing to talk to and open up to? I just find guys over and over again that end up isolating themselves. They're just stuck on their careers, making themselves successful without reference to people. And it's meaningless. Totally meaningless. Wasting your life. So... Figure out what the social implications of your work life are. Figure out what the worship implications are of your work life. Then your work life begins to take on the meaning it was meant to take on. Otherwise, it's a waste. That's what's being said here uh, by Kohelet. Uh, how do you make friends? I'm glad you asked. Oftentimes, we think we're going to make friends through our success. Isn't it interesting? Every friend we make is going to have to be a friend who likes us to be successful or we're not going to be the friend. So our success determines our social network. I was asking some of you some years ago why it is that we Presbyterians are so lousy at evangelism. And uh, as we got through, through the conversation, it became obvious to all of us, there were about probably eight or ten of us in the room, that... The reason was that most of us in the room had people reporting to us and we didn't want to make them think that they had to be Christians in order to have a valid place at the table in our business and therefore it was very awkward for us to evangelize them because they might think that they need to become Christians in order to please the boss in order to be successful. So that didn't work. And the other set of relationships were in the church. Well, they're already evangelized, so that won't work. And the other set of relationships are the foursome at the golf club. And we've been playing with the same guys for several years and they know who we are and they know about Jesus and they don't, they've decided not to believe in Him and so we just don't want to harass them. So that group is all worn out. You know what the conclusion was? We need some new friends. Uh, because all of our friends were forged around our business environment. Church and business. Now think about it. How much meaningful contact is that going to give you so that you can talk to someone meaningfully about Jesus Christ? We just haven't even thought about our friends and how they're forged. And usually friendships are forged based on your perceived, their perceived contribution to your success. And that's just not a real good way to make friends. We often make friends through the exercise of our powers. We exercise our competence and then we get friends who like us to be competent and who will encourage the illusion of our competence. And that's the way we build friends. I had an interesting, as some of the others of you did, email from our uh, church planter. We have a man, uh, Richard Reeves, a wonderful uh, pastor who's just making some friendships downtown and eventually will uh, pull together, a, we hope, a multi-ethnic church uh, center city, center city downtown. And uh, Richard's gotten 
involved in the community, just trying to meet people and, uh, and get to know what's going on in downtown Memphis. Lives on Mud Island. His house burned to the ground just last week. And, uh, of course, you wonder, Lord, uh, I think there's somebody around here that doesn't want me to plant a church in downtown Memphis, you know, the devil. And Richard's been doing a lot of theologizing and philosophizing, and the rest of us have been benefiting from it. And uh, he, he writes his thoughts at night. And he said here uh, the other day, we so want to believe that God uses strong people because we want to be strong. But God uses the weak to shame the strong, the things that are not to nullify the things that are. The night of the fire, all of my neighbors witnessed me cry at least once. That was my first introduction to one neighbor. His wife cooked us dinner. Lasagna in individually wrapped packages so we could just heat the servings up. She made these crab meat cheesy spread things placed on top of an English muffin, pasta salad, and some kind of cheese dip. All of it was amazing. The husband has dropped by to check on us more than once. Strength separates us. At the points I am stronger, I am better, or so I think. Weakness unites. There is nothing threatening about weakness. Weakness is not competitive like strength. Yet when one is crying, something happens in us all. We want to do something. When one team beats another, the winning team goes out for beer. But the losing team goes home. Weakness compels us toward one another and builds community. God is much wiser than us all. God in using the weak to shame the strong is using my weakness to shame me. I've been praying for God to create a new community for this church plant in downtown. I've been praying for God to bring together hundreds of people who might be willing to pray for this church. Yet I have been praying for God to enable and show me how to do these. With one small spark, He has thrust me, us, into the lives of more people than we know and ignited more prayer than we could have ever produced. In the process, He has humbled me. I haven't even thought about the church plant for a week. Yet He has been busy at work, planting, building, igniting, I am so small. He is so big. Now, don't walk away and think this is why the Reeves house burned. That merely reduces God to one whose purposes we can figure out. That is kind of the point. We will never figure it out nor him out. However, he promised to work all things for good. That means even evil. So we can rejoice in him whose good purposes are running deep, even and especially when we feel the opposite. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He never takes a day off. He is always at work and he is good. May we all remember that, especially in our weakest moments. So you want to know how to make friends. The honest truth is you make friends in a context where you can share your weakness. And friends draw together, encourage one another, and support and pray for each other and hold each other accountable. So suffering stinks. Achievement stinks. Next, advancement stinks. Look at verses 13 through 16. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. 
I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Well, here's the situation. A young man comes to prominence. He's the king. Everybody's with him until the young successor arises on the scene. And then everybody leaves the old king and looks to the new king. He grows up, same thing happens. Here's the point. A, others will applaud your rise. Oh, yes, they will. They'll applaud your rise. You're the man. You're the power broker. I want to know you. I'm going to applaud you. Good going. Congratulations. Wonderful. B, they will soon applaud your fall. I'm glad that sucker's out of here. Never did like him very much. Anybody notice that here past couple of weeks? Please stay. Please stay. We want you to stay. Oh, we'll pay you more and more money to stay. Oh, you're not going to stay? Oh, screw you. Uh, I heard it. I'm just quoting what I heard. And uh, here's what Koheleth is saying. That if you think advancement is the way to meaning in life, you've got another thought coming. You think everyone is going to love you because you advance. It's all an illusion. They don't love you because you advance. They're afraid of you. And just kissing up to you. And they'll applaud you as long as you're indefatigable. As long as you're undefeatable. And when you're on your way down, okay, he's getting what he deserved. That's the way it works. That's what Koheleth says. There's only one way to go up and stay up, and that's to be in Jesus Christ by the power of the resurrection. For he has defeated death itself, and he is as far up as it can possibly go. Right hand of the Father. And when you're in him, that's exactly where you're going. You ain't coming back. There's going to be no fall. It's all rise. And you're going to be in a community of people who will be glad for your success. You know, some people really spend a lot of their lives trying to advance, to get over other guys and to have the accolades of other people. And, you know, obviously there are some professions that bring this out more than others. I'm, I'm sure that in, in the entertainment business, uh, you could say, well, that's really obvious. You know, they, they, they want to advance. They want the applause of people. Or in politics, uh, you'd say, well, that's really obvious. And they just want to get elected. They want to have the favor of the people. They'll spend millions and millions of their own money to make a $100,000 salary to, to have the accolades of the people. Just so we can all see it real clearly in other professions, can't we? That's true in our profession, too. Whatever it is, we all like to advance. And it's all meaningless apart from service and love for Jesus Christ. It's so interesting. I mentioned, I think, in the early service on Sunday... This book uh, by John Meacham called The American Lion. It's, it's a biography of Andrew Jackson. And I read it uh, because I wanted to see if I could get over my biases against Jackson. I, he's never been one of my favorite presidents. And I think it was because of his unrepentant slaveholding practices and his, his, uh, his plan to uh, uh, rid the southeast of, of American Indians. And I happened to be I have to have grown up around the area of the Cherokee Indians, and I'm very aware of the Trail of Tears and 
you know, out of 16,000 Cherokees who were going west, 4,000 of them died along the way. I mean, it was just an awful, brutal thing. And it, Jackson was behind it. So I, even though he's a Tennessee president, the Hermitage and all the rest, I've just never liked him very much. But in reading the biography, uh, certainly uh, I, I respect him and his tremendous power. He was, a, as you know, a general and fought in the French and Indian War and so on, and a hero in New Orleans in 1812. And he uh, he uh, had to face some of the same problems that Lincoln faced, uh, but he just faced them 30 years earlier, uh, especially with the South Carolinians, and he took them on very boldly. You have to respect him for that. He had a huge banking problem that you may know about. There was one big national bank in Philadelphia that, that made loans to congressmen and controlled everything, and Jackson just flat broke it, broke it up, uh, and it took a lot out of him. So you have to respect him for that. But when you get to the end of his life, you know, he was always kind of a fighter, seemed to me. And that's another reason I, I didn't particularly, I never took to him. He was a very combative person. He was a fighter in the military, and then he was a fighter as president. Uh, and a lot of it had to do, you can go all the way back to his childhood, and I won't go into it, but you can see how uh, he was working out of the insecurities of his own boyhood in some ways. But when it gets to the end, the most fascinating thing about Jackson gets to the end of his life. He's finished his two terms in Washington, comes back to the Hermitage, and he goes to the little church there, the Hermitage Church, and here's the preacher. And here's what the preacher preached on a Sunday morning. I mean, it was just right up, it was, probably he was talking directly to Jackson. But he said, how is it, the pre this is the preacher on a Sunday morning, how is it that a man endowed with reason, oh, wait, just a minute, uh, let me back up just a minute. Uh, he says, uh, the career of a man who, in addition to the, uh, the career of a man who, in addition to the ordinary dangers of human life, had encountered those of wilderness, of war, and of keen political conflict. He escaped the tomahawk of the savage, the attack of his country's enemies, the privations and fatigues of border warfare, and the aim of the assassin. How is it, the preacher said, <laughs> that a man endowed with reason and gifted with intelligence can pass through such scenes as these unharmed and not see the hand of God in his deliverance? You think he was preaching at somebody that day? <laughs> Jackson goes home that day, and he's under deep conviction. And he calls for the preacher to come see him. The preacher couldn't come till the next morning. And Jackson is up all night long. And basically, he's doing business with the Lord. He realized the Lord that his mama had taught him about in the old days in North Carolina where he grew up, that the God his mama had taught about him, him about was real and had been involved in his life, and he had been ignoring him. So Jackson basically comes to conviction, gives his life to Christ, and shortly after that, he's in that church leaning on his cane, professing the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And then on his deathbed, those who were around him uh, say that Jackson was suffering greatly before he died. And uh, he said, When I have suffered sufficiently, the Lord will then take me to himself. But what are all my sufferings compared to those of the blessed Savior who died upon that cross for me? Mine are nothing. And then shortly after that, he died. And I'm thinking, you know what? All the battles he fought in, all the political battles he engaged in Washington, I mean, it's hard as an American to say they were meaningless, but ultimately, for Jackson, they're meaningless. There's only one thing that was meaningful, really, enduring, and that was when he came under conviction of the Holy Spirit by the Word of God 
and he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's meaningful. And that's the only thing that matters to him now. That's the only thing that matters to him. You know, he died 150 years ago. The only thing that matters to him right now is what happened at the end of his life when he met Christ savingly. So advancement stinks, really, because it just won't take you anywhere in the long run. Okay, let's look lastly at verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And here we're going to see, I mean, this is hard to say as someone who loves worship, but liturgy stinks. And let's see how it does. Chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. It's an amazing thing. We, I guess we would all come to this Bible study this morning saying, you know, I, I expect the preacher to say that, that work is meaningless, money is meaningless, achievement is meaningless, advancement is meaningless. I did not expect him to say that worship is meaningless. But what the Koheleth is teaching us here is that the worship that a lot of people perform is meaningless. Because it really is worship without God in view. It's worship with the liturgy in view. The, the PowerPoint screen in view. The musicians in view. The prayer book in view. The hymnal in view. But it's not worship with God in view. And it's all meaningless. It stinks. It's worthless without God in view. I think that's what he's saying. Notice the first verse. He just says, guard your steps. Or we would just say, watch your step when going to the house of God. So he's saying, he's talking here to people who do go to church. He's not talking to people who don't go to church. He's talking about people who do go. He's saying, watch your step when you go. And I remember as a young man, before I was a Christian, I was making fun of one of my friends who went to church. And uh, I was saying, Mike, why do you go to church? You know, what good is it doing you? And here was his answer. I'll never forget it. I mean, this is before I was a Christian. It was, it was 30, you know, 35 years ago. Mike said, well, to be honest, he said, during Mass, I figure out my golf grip. And I don't have any time during the week really to think about it, you know, whether I want to overlap or, inter, you know, hook in. And there's got to be something wrong with my right hand. He said, I just have time to think during Mass. Thought, now, that's a good reason to go to church. <laughs> All of a sudden, it made sense to me because he was a pretty good golfer. I thought maybe I could go to church and help my golf game too. And here's what, <laughs> here's what Koheleth is saying. It may be good for your golf game, but it's basically meaningless. When you go to church and all you're thinking about is your spreadsheet and business. 
and you're just, you want you like quiet time in worship because then you get some time to think about something really important, you know, like how you're going to pursue that woman you've been chasing, you know, or whatever it is. And it's just meaningless. Watch your step. How do you watch your step? Number one, A, realize many words are meaningless. That is, cut the baloney. There are things that are written and prepared for you and some things you might be wanting to say in worship, but be very careful because fools utter a whole bunch of words. What do wise people do? How do you make your worship meaningful? Here's the first thing. He says right there in verse 1, he says, go near to listen. So you first of all, listen. Are you worshiping or going through the motions? If you're worshiping, the first thing you do is listen to the Lord. That's the reason that in proper worship, it is suffused with the Word of God. Those of you who worship a second, you'll notice that there's a call to worship, and then what? You worship with a hymn. The call to worship is God's Word calling you to worship. That's His Word. Listen to Him. God is great. Therefore, let everyone worship Him. All right, now you worship and you sing your song. You'll notice there's a call to confession, often a scripture passage that calls us to confession. Then what do we do? We confess. We've listened to Him as to why we should confess, and then we confess. And then what? We listen again. He tells us, I love rotten, dirty, ugly sinners like you. Woo! Praise the Lord. We respond. We get the assurance of pardon from His Word. We listen to Him. We actually are forgiven. You're supposed to believe that. It's a responsibility on your part to believe that. that there is no condemnation on your life. You're responsible to believe that. And when you believe it, you're going to sing a song. And you're going to bring offerings. And that's what we do. We bring our offerings after we've worshiped the Lord in His greatness and we've acknowledged His, the assurance of pardon that we have from Him. Now we sing and give our gifts. And we offer our prayer of thanksgiving. Then what? We're bid to pray. What do we do? We pray. Then what? We hear a sermon. It's a long word from God. <laughs> God has a lot to say in the sermon. That's because humans get involved. We're not just reading the word. Now we're interpreting it, trying to apply it. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to listen very carefully. I know, I know, brothers, how hard it is to listen. Listen, long before I ever thought I was going to be a pastor, I was a listener. Whoo, man, it's a lot. I just want you to know, it's a lot easier to preach than it is to listen. A whole lot easier. Man, I thought some of those sermons would never get through. And now I'm wreaking vengeance on all everybody else. So yeah, it's hard. And there are, let me tell you, with most preachers, what you have to do. And I would say really with all preachers, but with some, you really have to work hard on it. You have to take what he is saying and you have to reshape it and preach it back to yourself. Honestly, if you're going to get good at this, if you're going to be a good listener, listener that's what you're going to do because the fact of the matter is most of us cannot preach at a level that will sustain your interest and sustain uh, a, a close connection between you and the text. We're just not gifted enough. You've got to be a good listener. And that's the way you do it. You actually begin preaching to yourself. If you want to know the truth, those who turn out being public preachers are those who started out preaching to themselves and then it just kind of bubbled over. So learn to preach to yourself. I, I would say when we do Amen Bible study, 
one of the things I would hope that we would accomplish is that you would pick up a method for dealing with the Bible yourself when you read it alone. That you would pick up a method for taking the Bible when you read it and applying it to your own life and your personal devotions. I would hope that through Amen Bible Study, you would, by osmosis, just pick up a method of listening to the Word of God. In fact, if that's what we go away from Amen with, that is mission accomplished as far as I'm concerned, even if you don't remember the particular text of the day, if you pick up a way to approach the Bible. Because the fools start uttering things. The wise person who wants to worship meaningfully listens carefully. So that means every time the Lord opens His mouth, which is when the Word is being read or proclaimed, we listen very carefully. We use all of our critical apparatus. We use all of our ability to to think and to reason and to communicate. We use all of that, bring it all to the front, bring it all to to the battle, and we take the Word of God and apply it to our own hearts. That means that you use your mind. It means you use your imagination. And any good communicator uses his imagination. You must use your imagination as you apply it to yourself. And the preacher won't apply the Bible to every single circumstance sitting in every seat that day. You apply it to yourself because you're a good listener. You can look in in the larger catechism. Let me just give you these two questions you can look up later. 155 and 160. And there you have how the Bible is to be read and why it's to be heard and how it's to be heard. There's a particular way, and I I would suggest you take larger catechism 160, look at every one of those phrases and challenge yourself and ask yourself, am I listening that way to the Bible in worship and listening to it as the Word of God? Now, if you'll take larger catechism 160 and apply it to your life, I think you're going to find your connection to the Lord in worship would not be described as meaningless. There's a profound meaning to it because you've shut your mouth to begin with and you're opening your ears and you realize He's the Master, you're the servant. He's the Lord. You're the worshiper. And it changes worship completely. So many words are meaningless. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Then after we've listened, now the words that come from us will be more carefully chosen. They'll probably be fewer. And they'll be more devoted and meaningful than they ever would have been because we've listened very carefully. And that's the reason, of course, we have carefully prepared hymns and sometimes litanies and other forms of liturgy that we use. We write prayers sometimes. The reason for that, obviously, is that we can worship together. We can say the same words sincerely together. And there's a unifying element there. But it's also because you've asked certain people, whether it's Isaac Watts 200 years ago or the preacher of that week, to write a prayer or to prepare a hymn or a song that allows you to say sincerely something in a way you probably couldn't have crafted for yourself. So you're asking certain people with certain literary gifts or musical gifts to craft things so that you can say them in fewer words that are more poignant and more meaningful. And you're asking your brothers to help you with that. And that's the meaning of liturgists and musicians is to help the people of God express your own heart. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, the saints of, of old who have left us such a legacy in our church. Tremendous hymns and songs, thousands, tens of thousands of them. 
You can spend a lifetime just going through them and seeing the testimony of our brothers and sisters in the past and then taking up those same words yourself and offering them to the Lord sincerely because they're so beautifully said and they mean exactly what we, what we feel in the moment, but somebody else has put words to it for us. And this is the reason we sing not only contemporary songs, we sing old songs too. Why? Because some of our fathers and mothers were martyred as they sang those songs. We're going to remember our fathers and mothers. We're going to remember the various cultures of the world and the various seasons of God's history in the church. We bring it all together along with the, the new song, as the psalmist calls it. We, we sing a new song because we're continually inspired by the Spirit to celebrate and to thank Him. But we take these words that are carefully chosen so that when we learn to pray extemporaneous prayers, we're learning increasingly. We all start off as kindergartners, but we're increasingly learning how not to just offer baloney, things that we really don't believe, just using phrases that somebody else used that we haven't even thought about, but we offer our sincere thoughts and affections to the Lord. That's wise worship. And why are they words of affection? Because we've listened. We listened this last week that He died on an old rugged tree for us that we might have eternal life. We listened that He was raised from the grave for us that we too might be raised from the grave. We, we'll listen very carefully that He ascended into heaven. Why? Because we're going to ascend into heaven. We listen very carefully and our hearts start to rise up with gratitude and praise and the song and the liturgy comes out of that. Now it's meaningful because we've listened. We've given due attention. So we just need to slow down and listen. And if you think your sermons are very boring in your church, look, there's something you can do about it. And I'll give you about six weeks. You re-preach those sermons to yourself. Now if they're boring... Guess who's boring? You. You can't take the text your boring preacher is preaching from and you can't craft anything out of that that's of meaning to yourself. Well, that's pretty boring. What's gotten into you? Can you not listen to the Word and apply it to yourself in some way? Have you not been to enough Amen Bible studies or church services that you can preach a sermon to yourself? You know, after I've realized this, after I've been a Christian three or four years, I got to the point that although I knew, technically speaking, there were boring sermons being preached at me, I never heard another boring one. Because I learned to take those words and preach them to my own heart. Every man must learn how to do that so that our worship is not meaningless. I don't care who's preaching. It's not meaningless because we are listening to the Lord very carefully. Notice B, not only many words, but insincere words. They're offensive. What are insincere words? They're words that you say that you don't mean. In this case, they're promises that you make that you don't keep. Now, in particular, the worship words that are being addressed here, it's a certain aspect of worship called vow-taking. And if you want to know why Christians get married in church, it's because the vows are an act of worship. So we get married in church because we get married in worship services, because we take our vows in worship. If you'll look in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 22, later on, there's a whole chapter on oaths and vows. Interesting. Oaths are promises I make with God as my witness. So I, I could say to you, as, as, with God as my witness, I swear that I will repay that $10,000. There's an oath. 
I just took on the name of the Lord. And I made it to a man. A vow is a promise we make to the Lord. And it's done in worship. You'll find the psalmist refer to it. You know, let us uh, into the house of the Lord and pay our vows and so on. So we've made certain vows. Now, think about it. I, I say to men often, if you'll just stop for a moment, think about the vows you took to the Lord and structure your life around those vows. You'll be living a healthy life. Think about it. Now, this is true for some, some of us. Maybe in other traditions you didn't do this, but in our church, if you join the church, you take five vows. They're wonderful vows that just commit me to mere Christianity. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I need Jesus. I promise to seek to live a holy life. I'll participate in the work and worship of the church to the best of my ability, and I'll submit to the government and discipline of the church to promote its purity and peace and so on. Five vows. There's mere Christianity. Then I got married, and I said, I will take Allison as my wife. I'll be a loving and faithful husband and plenty and want and joy and sorrow and sickness and health as long as we both shall live. Loving and faithful, okay? That's another set of vows. Then I had babies, and I promised that I would, that I would give this child over to the Lord and that I would strive to set a godly example for this child. Pray with and for that child. Teach this child the doctrines of the, the, the truths of the sacred scriptures and use all the means of God's appointment to rear him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So there's another set of vows. Then I became a deacon. I took some more vows. Then I became an elder. I took some more vows. Then I became a pastor. I took some more vows. Ten vows. Now if I just take all... Those are sacred vows taken in worship. Now here is what Koheleth is saying. You're better off never to do that than to do it and violate it. Were your words meaningless? Were they hypocritical? Did you mean them when you said them? Did you realize the only way you can do that is if you swear your life to the Lord and that's the reason that you say, for example, in marriage, in planting and in want, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow. That's what you said. And notice what's being said here. Select your vows, uh, fulfill your vows quickly. Don't mess around. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. And secondly, select your vows carefully. Don't say vows you don't mean. That's the reason that we have an inquirer's class at our church. We take hours upon hours to help people find all the reasons they don't want to take these five membership vows. Because you're better off not taking them than to take them and not keep them. And so you see, if someone takes a membership vow that they promise to commit themselves to the work and worship of the church to the best of their ability, and then they just go off and drift. Don't have anything to do with the church anymore. The problem is not just that they're living a spiritually unhealthy life. The problem is they offered foolish worship to the Lord. They said something they obviously didn't mean. Quickly begin the life of doing what you said you're going to do. And whether you enjoy being married to your wife or not, you know, the real issue is not your wife. And it's not your happiness. The real issue is your worship. If you, took, if you took up your marriage in a Christian context, you took it up with a vow. So just realize what you did. Now, can we stop just a moment? There's not a person here who took a vow they didn't violate. Have I been a loving and faithful husband? I've been faithful sexually. I've been, have I been faithfully 
loving her, serving her all my life? No. So what do I do? I go back to the Lord. And I sincerely confess my sins and then sincerely repent. That is change. I can't say, please forgive my sins. Here, I'm going to go do it again. I'll talk to you tomorrow, Lord. I'll get that forgiveness again tomorrow. You and I got a good deal going. Your business is to forgive. My business is to sin. No, that doesn't work. Then we come under the judgment of our own vows. But we go back to the Lord and we repent. And I don't know about you. I've told you before with me. When I'm having a hard time loving my wife, I just go sit in the sanctuary all by myself. Just gaze at the cross. Christ is married to us. That's what he says. We're the bride. He's the groom. I just look at that cross. Okay. How delightful have we been to the Lord? Did he marry us because we were just so beautiful and kind and gracious and good? We were so sexy. That's the reason he married us. Who knows why he married us? Well, here's what we know. He was faithful and loving to the end. And I look at that cross and I say, there's marriage right there. Until it gets any worse for you, Wilson, than dying naked on a cross with a spear hanging on your side, don't complain. <laughs> because your groom loved you and your marriage that way. And you now you go do that. That's what we do. That's what we vow to do. Now, so we select it carefully. Don't take your vows lightly. Select your women carefully. <laughs> you know, uh, after you marry her, she's the one. You don't have to marry her until you marry her. You know, you... You don't select someone for whom this is going to be miserable. Sometimes it ends up being miserable. But you don't select someone with that, in thought, that thought in mind. You select them with someone that you're going to really enjoy dying for. And then after you marry them, you never know. But you've taken your vows. Select your vows carefully. And then thirdly, cut the excuses. He says here in verse 6, Do not protest to the temple messenger. Oh, my vow was a mistake. How many times have I heard guys like like us in this room say, you know, we never should have been married in the first place. As though that somehow validates my saying, well, we're just going to break it off because we never should have been married in the first place. Okay, look, I agree you're an idiot. You shouldn't have been married in the first place. I agree. So what? Should you never have given your life to Christ in the first place? The point is not whether you should have married her. The point is, did you, did you love Jesus Christ? Did you promise to serve Him? Did you take a vow? Should, should we just cancel your relationship with Jesus because it doesn't work out too well? You're just too bad a sinner? No. The answer is called repentance and faith. So don't make excuses to the one at the temple and say, I never should have done it in the first place. Select your vows carefully and then keep them. Now, like I say, when you break them, what do you do? You start where you are today. That's a wonderful thing about being a Christian. I love being a Christian because I screw up all the time. Yesterday, I, I just sinned over and over again. Sometimes this week, I didn't even look like a Christian. I didn't sound like a Christian. I don't deserve to be a Christian. I'll just start today. I do that every day, brothers, <laughs> every day. Just start today. April the 16th, didn't it? Got your taxes, didn't you? April the 16th. Start today. And that's the way we do it. Lastly, fear God. Stand in awe of God. That's, that's what Charles Bridges calls the grand fundamental of godliness. Fear God. And when you fear God, your words will be few. They'll be well chosen. They'll be faithfully kept. 
you will listen to him and you will delight yourself in the love and the fear of the Lord. Is life meaningless? Heck no, it's not meaningless. It's full of life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let us pray. Father, uh, it is amazing to us how meaningless life can be, even worship, apart from the fear of God, apart from a knowledge of your very being and character. Please fill us with that knowledge again today. No matter where we've been or what we've done, help us to realize profoundly the bottom of our hearts, you love sinners. You love men who have failed. You love men who are weak. You simply love men who come to you to be loved and forgiven, who want to start again this morning and who will do so every day of our lives, turning to you with trust and with repentant hearts. Lord, may this be the mark of our lives, not only today, but as long as we shall live on this earth until we see you face to face, and then we'll know that truly everything was meaningful because of you. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.